Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 192, Bosworth. First of all, some admin. I have been promising that we will cover the princes in the tower. And so I can reveal to you that we will do exactly the same routine as we went through with Richard and the usurpation. And there will be once more prizes. This time, first prize is a rather nice silver Henry III long cross penny from somewhere between 1247 and 1272. Second prize are again two cut coins from the very same period. 13th century. After this episode today, I will post a page on the website, thehistoryofengland.com, with all the details of how the process works. During this week, I'll post some pages with handy summaries of the evidence and arguments at the same place. And then next Sunday, next Sunday, we'll have the episode, The Blood of Innocence. And voting and a full and frank exchange of views can begin. Voting will be on the History of England Facebook page. Lists will close midnight the 10th of September and the result will be the very next day. Cool or what? Well, by golly, Bosworth. Here we are at an event so well trodden it sends a shiver of fear and terror up my spine. I look forward to a mass of corrections. Oh well, here goes. But of course we've got more than a few preliminaries to cover first. We've covered a lot of the internal stuff about Richard's reign, but kind of ignored the fact that Richard's energies were also very much directed towards the threat that Henry Tudor posed. Richard was not by any means idle or careless of that threat. The first thing to think about is money. The root of all evil. The sinews of war, depending on your viewpoint. When he started off, Richard did have a few things going for him in the money area. He'd just cut off Buckingham's head for starters, which gave him a bunch of property. He, in theory, still had all of his own northern lands, and he had the old patrimony of Lancaster to mess about with. In terms of his income from land, living off his own in terms of the contemporary parlance, actually, he was looking pretty good. But, of course, he'd not been able to hang on to all of that stuff he'd had to go through the process of distributing patronage to try to keep his affinity and his wider gentry and magnets happy. Actually, the school report on Richard about how he went about this is pretty positive. Although the Crowland chronicler moaned about Richard spending too much cash, in fact, Richard distributed the goodies pretty well. He by and large avoided the danger of desperately giving everything away to try and curry favour, leaving him destitute. After Buckingham had crashed and burned, he largely avoided setting up the situation that Edward IV had arrived at, of handing over all the regions of England to a small group of greater magnates. 
So, for example, he retained his northern lands within his own control, though that did give him another kind of problem with one particular magnate, Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland. But so, snap Sir Richard. After all this was done, he could still count on something in the £25,000 area in terms of his landed income. Added to that, in his Parliament of 1484, his compliant Parliament did the decent, and by now, traditional thing, of giving him the income from customs, tonnage and poundage for his life. Plus, he managed to squeeze the clergy for a couple of subsidies. But that, sadly for Richard, was as far as the good news went. What he did not feel able to do, for good reason, was to ask Parliament for a subsidy. And it was really this level of cash he needed to be confident of responding to any invasion. He couldn't ask for three reasons, really. Because it was a rubbish way for a shaky king with a credibility problem to start his reign. Because subsidies were generally granted for foreign wars and glory only. And because his parliament knew full well he had a pretty good landed income and expected him to live of his own. Plus, of course, remember that Edward Woodville had run away with at least half of the royal treasury to Brittany. So the long and short was that Richard was strapped for cash. By 1485, he was back into the business of going to his richest subjects for forced loans. As in, you really do want to loan me a £1,000, don't you? Open brackets, if you know what's good for you. Close brackets. True enough, he lived up to his new law of no benevolences by promising to repay the loans. But as it happens, repayment was one problem Henry was going to solve for him. Plus, he got into another method of which his successor was to make a bona fide work of art, the gentle art of bonds, suspended penalties. Now, suspended penalties are not new. Medieval kings like good King John, for example, had thoroughly enjoyed this technique. What you did is pick on someone who'd done something wrong. A landholder who'd marched with Buckingham in rebellion would be an ideal place to start. But it could be a nice rich landowner who'd fallen foul of the law in some way. So, in fear and panic, said lord came along to you at your command, pressed their nose as far into the dirt as it would go, and begged for a pardon. Please, O great king, forgive me the errors of my ways. I am your faithful and humble servant. I was young and foolish and badly advised. Well, you know me, rich landowner. I'm a gentle, forgiving, fun-loving kind of guy. Of course you can have a pardon. Thank you, O great king. I will forever be faithful and obedient and honour the laws of this great land. Or at least until I have another opportunity to pillage and steal one of my neighbour's more attractive pieces of land. Hmm, but hang on a moment, rich landowner. Of course, I know you're on, as honest and as straight as is the flight of an arrow. But how can I be sure you'll stick to this? Oh, great king, you see into my very soul with your all-known sight. You know me to be fair and honest and without blemish now that I have seen the light of your magnificence. Just trust me, O oh lord. Mm, yes, that is indeed one option. But actually, <laughs> I have a better idea. Why don't you give me a thousand quid, okay? I'll keep it in a nice, safe place. As long as you're a good boy, I'll promise to give it back. 
If you're not a good boy, though of course we know that's a silly idea, I'll keep it and cut your entrails out and burn them in front of your eyes while I'm about it. What do you think? Good idea? Excellent, O King. I preferred my idea, though. The discussion would go no further at this point. It's a nice technique, isn't it? You get a bunch of money, and you have a nice lever of political control to hang over said landowner's head. Or indeed a favour, actually, should you decide to use it in that way. Whoever compared medieval government to management of a crime syndicate did have a point. OK, so Richard is somewhat strapped for cash, but he's not destitute. If he could just keep his nose clean and avoid any massive expenditures, he'd be OK. And Richard's foreign policy needs to be seen in this context. And looking at Richard's foreign policy in this context, there are some oddities. Richard had one very obvious objective, to get his hands firmly round Tudor's throat with the time to squeeze firmly without interruption, or at very least get him securely locked up. But actually he had other objectives as well, and one very obvious and traditional way of winning support at home was war and glorious victory abroad which may well be what very nearly led Richard into a major blunder in Scotland. Edward had got involved in a war in Scotland he really didn't need. Now, you might argue that Scotland was a serious danger to England, what with the old alliance with France and all. But James III of Scotland was basically desperate for an alliance with England, because domestically, Scotland was riven by rivalries and dissent that makes the Wars of the Roses look like a cakewalk. But Edward had backed the rivals to James's throne, namely the Duke of Albany. And Richard did the same, and furthermore planned to lead an army into Scotland himself. Now I'm not going to go into this in any depth, because seriously we haven't got time. But essentially, Richard ignored the opportunity to make peace with James, and was on his way north to visit war on Scotland in 1484 when his son died at Nottingham. And surely the invasion would have been a disaster, even if it had gone swimmingly well. The last thing he needed was A, to spend vast amounts of money on a foreign war when he was strapped for cash, and B, be wandering around the moors and mountains of Scotland while your rival for the throne was leading a major invasion force to take said throne off you. As it happens, Richard's son's death or some flash of sanity, intervened in 1484, and he let the Duke of Albany lead a raid instead. Albany was duly slaughtered in the moors and mountains of Scotland, and Richard admitted defeat. In September 1484, he agreed a truce with James, and a marriage involving Anne de la Poole, Richard's niece. Now, as it happens, that never came to pass, and Anne became a nun, but for the moment, very sensibly, sorted. And so, you might ask, what was Richard doing about Tudor, given that this appeared to be the solution to most of the problems that Richard had? There is one of those very nasty phrases so popular in that timeless business game of bullshit bingo. Veronica, for example, will lead across to Dale, fix him with her steeliest of gazes and say, Look, Jim, with all due respect, meaning none, of course, there ain't no silver bullet here. 
Well, I guess Veronica is by and large absolutely right in most situations. But with Richard, she might just be wrong. With Henry Tudor dead, there really was no other available option to Richard. So totalling Henry was pretty much a silver bullet for Richard's legitimacy problem. Let me give you a bit of background super fast. As we know, Henry was in Brittany, held in genteel captivity by Duke Francis. However, Duke Francis has never been out of the top drawer Duke-wise, and despite setting low standards for his personal performance, was failing to meet them. He was old. He was tired. So, Richard's objective was to force Francis to hand over Henry to him. But why on earth should Francis do such a thing, I hear you ask? Well, I'm glad you asked that. And there are two answers. One of them was in France. In France, Louis the Universal Spider was dead. His son Charles was a minor, which was as always inconvenient. The regent was his rather talented sister, Anne of Beaujeu. Now you might think England was a fractious place, but as I think you might have learned by now, the French make the English look like a model of stability and consensus politics. And don't even get me started on the Scots. So, you will therefore not be surprised to learn that France had split into factions. The anti-Beaujeu fraction, let us for ease call them Orleanists, largely because that's what they were called, wanted her gone. They wanted Anne out. They wanted back to the good old days when a decent French duke could safely ignore the king sitting in Paris and do just exactly what they liked. And so they were eager to bring Brittany into an anti-Beaujeu alliance. Oakley doakley, I promise I will make this relevant. So, Richard took the old fist-in-a-velvet-glove approach with Brittany. Now, the Bretons are essentially a bunch of Celtic pirates. I say this with admiration, of course, as I would say the same for the Cornish. The Bretons, egged on by the support of Francis for Henry's last failed invasion, were raiding English shipping like there was no tomorrow. And in return, Richard now let his own pirates off the leash, commissioning them to visit fire and sword on Breton shipping and ports. And by golly, it worked. By the latter part of 1484, Britain's trade was suffering badly, and Francis wanted it to end. So that's the iron fist bit. The velvet glove bit was his support for Brittany for their age-old fight to be independent of France. Now, there was this Orleanist faction in France trying to do the same thing as well, so there was a real opportunity to force Francis to hand Henry over. And so Richard came to Francis with an offer of the matchless English archers to fight for him. The velvet glove bit. See, I made the French faction think really relevant, if not pertinent. And it's not often you get to use the word pertinent in a podcast. OK, so we're getting close now. So great news for Richard. Francis was ready to hand over the Blessed Tudor and his Woodville chumps in chains in payment. Richard was so close he could smell it. Hurrah! But remember two things. England is a hotbed of intrigue and Richard was not a lucky guy. Someone got a message to Henry, probably via John Morton, who appears to be at the French court at this time rather than in Brittany. Who spilt the beans? Well, the clever money's on Thomas Stanley tipping the wink to Margaret Beaufort 
and Margaret getting the message to Morton, but nothing's for sure in this life. And now again that faction thing at the French court comes back into play. Now there's a good reason for the French to sit up and take notice. The French, for good reason, did not like English archers. They did not want them fighting against them. So if Anne Beaujeu, there was a really good reason to support Tudor to distract Richard. And so the message went back to Tudor, as they say in the Middle Earth, Fly, you fools! Jasper Tudor left the Breton town of Van, apparently on his way to meet with the Duke Francis, presumably whistling casually. <whistles> then when he came near the French border, he legged it as hard as he could over the border into Anjou. <whistles> Two days later, Henry Tudor left Van with just five servants, saying that he was going to meet a friend, presumably whistling casually. And then when he neared the border, guess what? He too lifted his skirts, showed his hairy knees and legged it over the border. <laughs> too late, the Bretons had realised what was going on. Though I have to say, really? Was it that difficult? Brains the size of a small shriveled nut. They sent men in hot pursuit, but Henry was over the border just an hour before they caught her. Phew! Daring do or what? By October 1484, Henry was safely ensconced in the French court and negotiations could begin. At this point, poor old Duke Francis appeared to wash his hands of the whole affair and let the rest of Henry's supporters leave and go to Paris too, on the grounds that they're eating him out of house and home. Richard must have been apoplectic with rage. So close, so unlucky. Richard was not idle. He clearly worked Elizabeth Woodville, and she wrote to her son, Dorset, trying to persuade him to come home, and amazingly, it seemed to work, and Dorset set off, only to be intercepted by Henry's agents and gently, or maybe not too gently actually, persuaded to return to Brittany. OK, so the diplomatic approach had crashed and burned, but there was the military option. Richard could try to stop Henry getting over to England at all, and so ships were commissioned. And if he did arrive, he could make sure there was a super strong army ready to give him a warm welcome. Richard could not have done more. Commissions of array were raised, letters sent round the country to get people to prepare, make sure that when the time came, they would be ready to send men. I mentioned that there was much distrust evident in Richard's dealings with the rank and file of the gentry but he did have to trust somebody. So at this point, let us therefore summarise the men he did decide to trust, his three remaining big magnates. John Howard, the Duke of Norfolk. Thomas Stanley. Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland. Richard's letters told his regents to work directly with these men and no other, not with their direct lords that they would normally have worked with. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Of John Howard, 
Richard could feel confident. Here was a man who owed his enormous advancement directly to Richard and whose action had stymied the 1483 rebellion in Kent. Cool. Tick. Of Henry Percy, he'd have felt reasonably confident. Percy had been rewarded with land in 1483 and confirmed in all his posts and been given a grand new title of Warden of all the Northern Marches or something like that. But Percy might have been expecting even more. Richard had an eye for the future and had not wanted to create an autonomous power in the North with all the independence he himself had had under Edward. So the title was in practice something of a sham. Percy remained confined to the eastern marches. And Richard had set up a new council of the north, but then made the Earl of Lincoln its president, not Percy. So it could well be that Percy was not as happy as he might seem. So, despite the fact that Percy had worked with Richard for many years, despite his support for Richard in 1483, Richard might trust him, but there was also a question mark. So, Percy, qualified ticklet. Now the Stanleys, Thomas and William. Here were men who had jumped from head to head more times than lice at a children's tea party. And yet, like cockroaches, they'd survived the consequences of each perfidity. Richard himself had felt unable to remove Thomas Stanley in 1483, given the depth and breadth of Stanley's strength in the northwest of England. Now, true enough, the Stanleys had apparently proved loyal during the Buckingham Rebellion, and that was a plus. And Richard had then done his best to build trust and partnership with the Stanleys, actively employing both Thomas and William within his administration. But there was that wife of Thomas's, Margaret Beaufort, and her obvious treachery in favour of her weasel of a son. He may have known or caught a whiff that Margaret's household arrest wasn't quite as tight as he might have hoped. Whatever Richard was, he was not a mindlessly trusting sort of cove. So when, in 1485, Thomas Stanley asked to be able to leave court to go home and spend more time with the family, Richard agreed only on condition that he leave his eldest son, George, Lord Strange, back at court, for which Reed leave as a hostage. Now, that can't have made Stanley feel trusted, but then, as you know, gentle listeners, in life, you reap as you sow. So there we go. Richard had done everything he could, and he took up home for much of the time at Nottingham. And as spring 1485 stretched into summer 1485, he was forced to wait. Over in France... Tudor was also busy, communicating with as many of the lords and magnates of England he thought might be open to a change of management. Now, we can't be exactly sure what went on and who he communicated with. After all, it was secret. But Percy and the Stanleys were obviously targets. It's at least eminently possible that before he left, Henry had some assurances from the Stanleys and from some supporters in Wales. Wales, because Jasper Tudor had been Earl of Pembroke in the south-west tip of Wales, and because Henry had been born in Wales. And the legends and myths springing up connected Henry with the ancient prophecies about the rise of the Red Dragon, a Tudor symbol, which would help him win support in Wales. So although Wales was not a traditional place to launch an invasion from France, that was the location Henry and Jasper had hit upon because it was there 
they could hope to get the best start. The French, meanwhile, were being accommodating without being wildly so. But Beaujeu loaned him money and allowed him to recruit, including trawling the jails of Normandy for a few likely lads. And right at the end of July, Jasper and Henry were ready to go with their intrepid band, or motley crew, of some French soldiers, English exiles and Norman villains. Henry took with him as his commander John de Vere, the die-hard Lancastrian Earl of Oxford, who had so recently escaped Richard's clutches from the Ham Castle. He also took with him a young 29-year-old man called William Brandon, a slightly desperate-sounding East Anglian lord who'd been accused of rape, taken part in Buckingham's rebellion. He'd been pardoned but jumped ship anyway and joined Henry in France, along with his wife, who gave birth to his son, Charles. While I'm telling you all of this, will become relevant at some long time in the future, so just put it in the back of your mind. But for the moment, just know that William Brandon was close to Henry and given the honour of being his standard bearer. But left Dorset as surety for the loan the French had given him. And given that Dorset had tried to run back to Richard, he probably wasn't the most valuable hostage Henry could have given the French. And so on the 7th of August, 1485, Henry and his band of probably about 4,000 warriors and cutthroats landed near Milford Haven on the coast of Wales. Henry jumped into the surf and did the traditional ground-kissing for the cameras. After he'd wiped all that sand from his lips, the obvious route was then along the south, straight towards the big prize, London. But instead, Henry took a much harder route, north along the west coast of Wales, now you might ask why, and probably because Richard had loyal supporters in South Wales and until he could increase the size of his army, Henry would have wanted to avoid conflict. And as he went, Henry sent out demanding letters to the Welsh, insisting that they join with him. But worryingly, their response was more than a little rubbish. Even more worryingly, the communication with the Stanleys wasn't going brilliantly. Now, Henry obviously wanted the Stanleys to join him with all their strength straight away. Both William and Thomas Stanley probably sent encouraging letters of vague support, but they kept their own independence of action and stayed away. Yes, they gathered their men, and William in particular gathered as many as 3,000 from North Wales and Cheshire. But as Henry marched through mid-Wales, the Stanleys moved southwards towards the English Midlands, so the Stanleys, as ever, were keeping their options open, basically. By the time he reached the English border around the 17th of August, Henry had a few wins. The Welsh Lord Rhys Ap Thomas declared for him, and a branch of the Talbot family. But seriously, Henry would have hoped for a lot more. He was looking at maybe 5,000 men. He could expect to face a lot more under Richard. Richard, meanwhile, probably found out that the moment of truth had arrived around the 11th of August, and all those plans were activated. Letters and commands to Percy, Howard and Stanley in particular, as well as to his own men, to assemble at Nottingham in the English Midlands. Yep, we're on our way, came back from Percy and Howard, gathering our men right now, boss. Ooh, would you mind awfully if I didn't? I'm feeling a trifle dicky with a bit of the sweats at the moment was the message from Thomas Stanley, on the other hand. In some versions of the story, 
Stanley's son was at this point forcibly interrogated by Richard, which you can imagine. Henry arrived at his first major town, Shrewsbury. Dan Jones tells an amusing story of the valiant and true bailiff of the town, one Thomas Mitten. Bravely, Mitten lowered the portcullis and refused entrance, declaring grandly, with a great oath, that they would have to walk over his belly before he allowed them in. A variant of the, Oi, you and whose army? Over my dead body, mate. Sadly, the rest of the good burghers of Shrewsbury didn't like the sound of this and the accompanying possibility of violence one little bit. And they took Mitten off to one side and burnt his ears good and proper. And before you could say abject surrender, Henry and his army were marching gaily through Shrewsbury. Mitten, meanwhile, lay down in the muddy street, belly to the air, so that Henry could indeed step over his belly. Mitten's honour was thus duly preserved, though not his dignity. By the 21st of August, Henry was at Atherston in the Midlands of England, stepping on the old Roman road of Watling Street, which led southeast towards London, and just 20 miles from Leicester. And it was at Leicester that Richard had assembled his forces on the 21st of August. As far as he could see, Richard had scored two out of three. Both Howard and Percy had arrived. Though there is a vast amount of debate about how many of his lords had supported him, the long and short is that much of the absences can be accounted for by the time taken to arrive, or indeed a bit of war weariness. Not another bloody battle. Damned if that's a party I'm going to. Just wake me up when we know who's king this week, sort of thing. But the long and short is that Richard had himself a pretty decent army and pretty decent odds, at very, very least, 7,000 to Henry's 5,000, and quite possibly Richard had more. Obviously, the Stanleys were a problem. They were still floating around the area, not showing any obvious signs of which way they would be jumping. But, as he set out to meet Henry in battle, Richard would have been feeling pretty comfortable. And certainly there were no signs of any large-scale desertions, or large-scale staying away in objection to Richard's regime. So by the evening of the 21st of August, the two armies were ready for battle the following day. Now look, gentle listeners, I could without doubt have spent several episodes on the Battle of Bosworth, no problem. It's a rather poorly reported battle, so there's all sorts of debates about where exactly it took place and who did what and so on and so forth. I have elected not to go into it all. If you are unhappy with this, drop me a line and maybe I can do a special or something. But for the moment, let me leave it that the site of the battle, traditionally a place called Ambien Hill near the town of Market Bosworth, was discovered in 2009 to be a couple of miles further southwest. On the morning of the 22nd of August, Richard looked like death warmed up, plagued apparently by terrible dreams and demons. But hey, if I had to go into battle, I'd be plagued by more than demons. What's clear is that Richard wanted this battle, and indeed needed this battle, every bit as much as did Henry Tudor. Meanwhile, as Howard, Duke of Norfolk, came out of his tent in the cold light of dawn, he found himself a friendly note. Jack of Norfolk, be not too bold, for Dickon thy master is bought and sold. Howard was, however, to prove every bit as resolute as was Richard. 
Richard strung out his army in a line, with Howard commanding the vanguard. The position of Percy is interesting, but he and his contingent appear to have been on the left. Richard must have been constantly plagued by doubts. Would Percy remain loyal when they arrived at the crunch? Of the Stanleys, Richard appears to have made up his mind. Famously, he is supposed to have demanded that Stanley declare himself and threatened to kill his son and received the reply that Stanley had other sons, so do your worst. Richard did indeed apparently order the worst, ordering his men to behead Lord Strange, but the order wasn't carried out. As it happens, the Stanleys were still playing both ends at this point. Henry's urgent inquiries got no more satisfaction than did Richard's. The Stanleys were playing for time. Richard had been able to choose the field of battle at the top of a rise, and he had been able to see the approaching armies. Facing Richard's vanguard under Howard came Oxford, with Henry and his personal guard to his left. Henry's own contingent may have been to the left of Howard and Percy even further left. Protecting Richard's left flank was a large area of impassable marshy ground. Hanging back behind Henry and to the left were two contingents of Stanleys, watching, waiting. Henry's army of exiles, Welsh, French and Scots, came on, skirting round the marsh to attack Howard in one mass battle. They were peppered by Richard's artillery and handgunners. Any notion that Richard was poorly prepared should be ignored. Plenty of ammunition of both types had been found on the battlefield. But then Richard gave the command and Howard charged down the rise into Oxford's vanguard and the vicious business of hand-to-hand fighting began. Pike and billhook, sword and axe and dagger. It seems as though Oxford ordered his men into tight groups around standards and in the press this concentration of men seemed to work and they began to gain the advantage. Either that or it was just bad luck that Howard was killed and anyway the death of Howard in itself can't have helped the morale of the Yorkists. The fight was hard, but for some reason Richard was unable to deploy Percy's battle, and Percy's battle contained most of Richard's northerners, his most committed supporters. Now, it might be that he couldn't commit Percy's battle for two reasons. It could be that the marsh now prevented Percy from joining, blocked him in, so that the only way for him to join the battle would have been through Howard's men. Or it could have been treachery on Percy's behalf. It could be that Henry's letters and blandishments had done their work. At this point, Henry put himself in great danger. He and a small personal guard became exposed. Either he had simply become disconnected from the main army as Oxford pushed forward, or maybe even he had decided to ride to William Stanley himself personally to entreat him to join and swing the battle decisively in his favour. On his hill, Richard and his cavalry saw an opportunity. If he could charge with his cavalry and kill Henry, the battle would without doubt end. If he killed Henry, the judgment of God could not be clearer. Plus, it could be that the main battle was going against him. Certainly his most trustworthy supporter was dead, Percy's loyalty uncertain. But, but... By attacking Henry directly, he would expose himself to horrible danger, disconnected from the main body of his army and right in front of Stanley's position. 
If their loyalty did indeed not hold, he would be in terrible danger. Richard stood on the edge of a cliff, danger and opportunity fighting for supremacy in his mind. And as he'd done in 1483, Richard rolled the dice. This day I will die as a king or win. He roared and with an impulse he could not restrain the recklessness of his nature winning out again he kicked his horse into action and with the men around him ordered the charge. The gold circlet on his crown gleaming as he rode. Across the ground, down the hill, round the desperate melee Richard led his cavalry and slammed into the exposed Henry with vicious speed and weight of horse and metal. They hit and carried all before them. Richard's path to Henry was blocked by a massive knight, John Cheney, but Richard hacked him down, chewing through Henry's guard. William Brandon was cut down and Henry's standard fell, and to all who saw it, that must have signalled the end of Henry Tudor. But the charge was slowing, and Henry's men resolutely gathered around him and desperately resisted. At which point, William Stanley rolled the dice and ordered his men to charge as well. And the object of his charge was not Henry, but Richard. It seems likely that at this point, as the Stanleys flew towards Richard, that he had the opportunity to fly, to escape back to his army. Though with the Stanleys now committed, it was Richard that was outnumbered. But Richard was committed. If he could just reach Henry, all could be saved. But Stanley's men hit before he could break through. And now the tables were turned. Richard's horse was killed from under him. At some point he must have lost his helmet and he was hit by several glancing blows that cut his scalp and took chips of bone off his skull. In agony he fought on, but a mounted man struck down with a dagger and pierced his skull and then came a mighty blow from a heavy bladed weapon which opened his skull at the base of his head and night closed on his eyes. Whatever his crimes or triumphs, one thing nobody could take away from Richard was the heroic nature of his death. To give the last words to the arch-assassin of his reputation, Polydore Virgil, he died, quote, fighting manfully in the thickest press of his enemies. Well, by golly, what a way to go. That seems like the best place to stop to me. We can deal with the wash-up from the battle and all that sort of thing at a future date. But next time, don't forget the Blood of Innocence debate, vote and prize draw. So don't forget to check out the website and the Facebook page to find out what's going on. Meanwhile, many thanks to my beloved regular donators and new donators this month. I really appreciate your support. Thanks to all of you for listening, for contributing to the website, Facebook page, iTunes reviews and all that sort of thing. Good luck everyone and have a great week. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. 
Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 